Uh, well, friends, uh, it's that time of year again. Uh, the Vivid Light Festival has begun in Sydney. Has it, anyone been to the Vivid Light Festival yet this year? Yep, there's a number of us. Um, I'm uh, really looking forward to going this year and seeing all uh, these buildings and landmarks in Sydney uh, all lit up in bright colours. I'm sure it will look spectacular, especially uh, against the blackness of the night, and uh, I just can't wait to get out there with my children. Uh, but uh, we've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, for the past little while, um, and uh, if you remember, Jesus in this sermon is teaching his disciples about life in the kingdom of heaven. And he's been teaching them that they are the light of the world. And they are to let their light shine in such a way that when others see them, well, they will give glory to the Father in heaven. Uh, you see, this is a lesson in being the light or being vivid Christians, uh, if I can put it that way. But uh, what, what does it mean to be the light? Uh, well, we've seen, haven't we, that it means being genuinely different to the world. Uh, it means having a heart that uh, genuinely wants to obey God's law, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, for example. Uh, it means doing our religious works in order to please God, rather than to be seen by men, uh, as uh, Matt pointed out this morning. But uh, today we're going to slow down a little bit and uh, have a look in some detail at uh, what has commonly come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's, a, it's a corporate prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples uh, to pray together uh, and to be a sort of template uh, for uh, Christian prayer. Uh, you can see it there in the middle of chapter 6, can't you? It's a, it, uh, it's a very famous prayer and you probably recognise it. Uh, and I want to suggest to you that this is a prayer that is set in the context of the disciples being the light and the disciples being different in this world. What does it look like to be different when we pray? Uh, you know, so many people in this world pray, don't they? Uh, people of other religions, for example, pray. Whenever there is some tragedy in the world, our politicians say they pray. Uh, even atheists pray in their desperate moments. But what does it look like for the disciples of Jesus to pray? Uh, well, the first thing uh, I think we can see here is that genuine Christian prayer looks like childlike dependence. Genuine Christian prayer looks like childlike dependence. Uh, now, you may have noticed that before Jesus teaches dis his disciples how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, he's been speaking about how not to pray. And so, in verse 5, he says, you must not be like the religious hypocrites who pray in order to be seen by others. And further, in verse 7, he says that you must not pray like the Gentile pagans, you know, who say empty words thinking that if they just pray these meaningless words over and over again for long enough, then they'll be able to somehow twist God's arms into giving them what they want. 
You see, pagans think of God as a reluctant giver who sort of needs to be nagged into giving them things. But what does Jesus say? Well, uh, notice that Jesus teaches his disciples about the God whom they are to pray to. Uh, In verse 8, this God is described, you'll notice, as the Father who knows what you need even before you ask him. And so, friends, we don't pray in order to inform God of anything that he doesn't already know. No, we pray to him because he graciously uses our prayers to bring about his will in our lives and in this world. Again, in verse 9, you'll see that the Lord's Prayer itself is addressed to our, our Father in heaven, God the Father. Uh, now, friends, I just want you to see how extraordinary this really is. Uh, you see, it was Jesus, wasn't it, who called God his Father. But here, he invites his disciples to share in this amazing intimacy with God that was simply unimaginable in Jesus' day. For in his time, God was seen to be so holy and so righteous that you couldn't be close to him. And yet, uh, Jesus tells his disciples that he is your father. Later writers in the New Testament tell us that when we put our trust in Jesus, uh, God pours out his spirit into our hearts so that we can now call Jesus our Lord and our brother and God our Father, the one who loves us and cares for us and protects us. But it's not an irreverent thing, is it? Uh, sometimes people take this, I think, a little bit too far and uh, they begin to you know, call God Daddy or you know, man or my best friend, uh, or things like that. Uh, I wonder whether you've seen that sort of thing happening. But no, God is still the holy and righteous, consuming fire who dwells in the heavens, who is worthy of our fear and reverence and worship. And yet, the astonishing thing that Jesus says here is that he is also our Father, the one whom we can depend on to provide us with the good things that we need. Uh, Now, friends, I'm deeply aware that sometimes people find it difficult to call God Father. Uh, I wonder whether you've you've ever found it difficult uh, to call God your Father. Uh, Lots of people find it difficult because they've had such an awful experience of fatherhood from their earthly fathers. Uh, Many years ago, I used to go to a church that reasoned that because so many people have uh, harsh and uh, often abusive fathers, well, they simply cannot call God by the title Father. And so uh, what this church decided to do was they decided to uh, call God Mother or Sister or Friend instead, anything but Father, you see. Uh, Now, friends, I'm sure you can see the concern there. But uh, I want to suggest to you that just because we can sometimes have terrible earthly fathers, well, it doesn't make God any less of a father, does it? 
In fact, it's only because we have this idea uh, in us, built into us, of what a good father should be that we get terribly hurt when our earthly fathers don't live up to those expectations. But to simply dismiss God as our father is to miss out on knowing the one who is the perfect father. For if you are a disciple of Jesus, your heavenly father is always loving, always good, always protecting of his children. And what a joy it is to know God in this way. Uh, The great reformer John Calvin used to say that it's as if God um, gives earthly fathers little drops of goodness, uh, like drops of water. Uh, Some earthly fathers uh, have big drops, uh, while other earthly fathers have a tiny drop. Uh, But Calvin says, God's fatherly goodness is like an ocean. It's inexhaustible in its goodness. And so when you pray, pray in dependence on this father who wishes to give his children good things. Uh, Well, we're looking at uh, Jesus' teaching on prayer, and uh, the second thing I want you to see is that genuine Christian prayer will look different because it actually focuses on God and his plans for this world. It focuses on God and his plans for the world. Uh, Now, you notice there that the Lord's Prayer uh, is made up of six petitions or six things that we ask for. Um, And uh, that's what prayer is in the end, isn't it? It's it's asking God for things. Uh, Often uh, people get confused about what prayer actually is. You know, is it about lighting candles, for example, or is it about uh, silently meditating uh, in your mind, or is it about uh, being silent enough to hear God speaking to you? Uh, well, there's actually none of those things. Uh, prayer is simply speaking words that are addressed to God because we want to ask Him for things. But notice in the Lord's Prayer, that the first three petitions that begin from verse 9 are all about God and his plans for the world. Can you see it? Uh, You can see it, I think, in how the word your is repeated again and again. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Uh, It's not about us. Uh, It's about God at this point. Now, it begins by asking God to hallow his name. Uh, Now, names are very closely connected with the person, uh, isn't it? Uh, Names represent who a person is and uh, what their character is like. Uh, That's why I think uh, we get terribly upset when people get our name wrong. Uh, Is that true of you? Um, I uh, ordered a boost juice uh, a while ago. And uh, I gave the the young lady at the counter my name. But uh, when my juice came out, uh, she called me Harry. Um, I don't know why it is, but uh, I got terribly offended because I I clearly gave her my name. And so uh, God's name represents who he is and his character and his reputation. But what does it mean for his name to be hallowed? 
the word hallowed is a bit of an old-fashioned uh, word, isn't it, that we don't use very much these days. Uh, but it simply means to make holy uh, or to set apart or to consider precious. Uh, when we pray this prayer, we are asking that more and more people in this world will see God as holy and set apart and precious in their lives so that they will begin to fear and revere him for who he is, revere his holy name. Uh, now, often uh, people think uh, this is simply about you know, not taking God's name in vain. Um, I often feel very upset when people take God's name in vain. Um, I don't know whether uh, you feel like that as well. Um, I hope you do. Um, so often people use the name of God as a swear word, don't they? Uh, you hear it in the movies. Uh, you hear it on public transport. You hear, I'm sure you hear it in your workplaces. And I wonder whether we get upset when we see and hear things like this. Uh, I get terribly upset because uh, it's terribly dishonouring to the one that I love, isn't it? But I want to suggest that equally, uh, we do not hallow God's name when we fail to live as his people. We do not hallow his name when we fail to live as his people. Um, in our Old Testament reading today from Ezekiel 36, uh, the people of God are in slavery uh, in uh, the foreign land of Babylon, and they're facing judgment uh, for their religious hypocrisy and injustice and idolatry. Uh, they've become a laughingstock among the nations around them, and uh, I wonder whether you picked it up. God says to the people of Israel that you have profaned my holy name. You see, it is because they were not living as God's people that they had profaned his name. But Ezekiel 36 is also a wonderful passage because it, it looks forward to a time when God will restore his name. He will restore his reputation and everyone will see and acknowledge that his name is above every other name. And that is what we are praying for in this first petition, that God will restore his name and his reputation among the people on this, world, uh, on this earth. Uh, now, the second petition uh, is a very similar prayer. Uh, you can see it there in verse 10, can't you? Verse 10, it says, Your kingdom come. Uh, God's kingdom, put simply, is the reign uh, or the rule of God in this world. Uh, this kingdom has already broken into this world with the coming of uh, the king, uh, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a kingdom that is now growing as more and more people uh, bow the knee and submit their lives to this king. But the reign of Jesus is not actually recognised by everyone at the moment in this world, is it? Uh, people are still rebelling against King Jesus. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus will one day come back again. And when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord, that he is the King. Uh, some will do this joyfully and willingly and live with their King forever. And I hope that that 
uh, is us, the ones who willingly bow our knee to the Lord Jesus, but others will do this forcibly as they face Jesus as the judge who will condemn them to eternal misery. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, what we are really asking for is for Jesus to return, for the king to come back and to reign over this world in a way that puts everything right. No more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, for these things have no place in the kingdom of King Jesus. And of course, uh, when that day comes, the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is what we pray in the third petition. On that day, when Jesus returns, heaven will come to earth and transform this place such that all who live in God's kingdom will be perfectly obedient to his will. And like at present, when we struggle sometimes to obey his will, and where we live amongst people who rebel against his will. And so, friends, I hope you can see that the first three petitions in the Lord's Prayer are actually all about God and his plans for this world. You see, it's impossible to be a disciple and a child of God and not be concerned about the things that God is concerned about in this world, is it? Uh, Some of you might know that I have a friend uh, who started working in his father's business straight out of high school. Uh, When we finished high school, uh, most of us became engineers and IT uh, people and uh, other professions. Uh, But not this friend. Uh, This friend, uh, who was very smart, decided to work in his father's delicatessen business. Uh, Salami became his passion. Uh, Cheese and small goods became his life. Why? Well, it was because he loved his father. His father's business became his business. His father's passion became his passion. It's not usual these days for sons to follow uh, in the business of their father anymore. But it certainly was during Jesus' time. And it's certainly what is expected uh, of disciples of Jesus. You see, if you and I are disciples of Jesus, then we are the ones who are to be shaped by God's concerns, by God's plans for this world. What Jesus is teaching his disciples here is to be concerned and to be shaped by the coming kingdom. And I wonder whether uh, your prayers and my prayers... Um, have this kind of flavour to them. Uh, uh, your prayers and my prayers shaped by the kingdom. Well, if they genuinely are, then I think it's impossible for the rest of our lives to be unaffected by it, don't you think? For we cannot genuinely pray, hallowed be your name, and then live in such a way that we dishonour his name. We cannot genuinely pray for God's kingdom to come without feeling the urgency of 
telling other people who do not yet know Jesus that this kingdom is coming and they need to get ready. Uh, We cannot genuinely pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven unless we are students of the Bible, which is where we find out what God's will is and seek to obey him now. Are you and I people whose lives are shaped and governed by this coming kingdom? Are we different in this way in our prayers and in our lives? Well, friends, uh, we've been asking the question, uh, what is different about genuine Christian prayer? And the final way I think uh, Jesus answers this question is that it will be different because Christian prayer seeks to ask for our greatest needs. Seeks to ask for our greatest needs. Uh, Now, I want you to notice that the final three petitions uh, really focuses in on asking things for ourselves, doesn't it? And uh, you can see this in the words us and our in in the prayer. From verse 11, it says, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, this is a prayer that asks God to provide us with our needs. But what are those needs? Well, you can see there in verse 11 that it begins with our daily bread. Uh, Traditionally, many Christians have understood this to be asking God for basic needs like food and shelter and so forth. Uh, But friends, uh, although I think it's it's very right and godly to be praying in dependence for uh, our our physical needs, uh, I actually think uh, Jesus is talking about something quite different here. Uh, For bread in the Old Testament is a symbol of the feast or banquet that we will enjoy in heaven. And so, um, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, do, you want, do you mind just flicking back with me to the prophet Isaiah? Uh, come to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 25, and uh, have a look at verses 6 to 8. Uh, Isaiah, chapter 25, verses 6 to 8. Uh, Isaiah, chapter 25, verse 6 to 8, uh, speaks of heaven uh, as, as a great big banquet. Uh, Verse 6 says, uh, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Uh, It's one of uh, a few passages in the Old Testament that speaks of uh, uh, heaven as a great banquet. It's a master chef kind of image, isn't it? But further, uh, this talk of bread, actually, what what does bread remind you of in the Old Testament? Why don't you uh, have a chat with uh, the person sitting next to you and uh, see if you can work that one out. What does bread remind you of in the Old Testament? All right, uh, that's enough time. Uh, uh, What what does bread uh, remind you of in the Old Testament? Some uh, brave soul uh, to venture an answer. The Last Supper, uh, yep, yep, so uh, the Passover meal, yeah, 
uh, in the Exodus. Yep. Bruce? Mount. If you happen to be glycemic. Thank you. Yep, Chrissy? Manor in the desert, yes. Uh, you remember when uh, uh, the God rescues uh, Israel out of slavery in Egypt uh, and they're traveling around in the desert? What does God do? Well, God uh, rains down manna, which uh, was like bread from heaven. And uh, the Israelites were to uh, collect uh, enough manna each day just for that day. Um, because if there was any left over for the next day, uh, the bread would actually go rancid. But does anyone remember what happens uh, on the day before the Sabbath day? You've had a go, Bruce. <laughs> Do you remember? Was that a hand wheel? Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you can read about this in Numbers 11, by the way, uh, if you want to make a note of it. But uh, on the day before the Sabbath, uh, the people of Israel were to collect twice the amount of bread um, so that they will have enough bread left over for the Sabbath. Uh, and that bread would not go off on the Sabbath, but they'll be able to uh, enjoy it uh, on that day. And so unless... Uh, they, the Israelites were uh, collected enough bread on the day before the Sabbath, they would not have enough to enjoy on the actual Sabbath day. Uh, unless they had bread for tomorrow, they would not be able to enjoy bread on the Sabbath day of rest. And uh, it, in, interestingly, uh, when Jesus says, give us uh, this day our daily bread. Uh, that phrase, daily bread, uh, uh, more literally, I think, uh, means the bread for tomorrow. And so I think what he's uh, uh, teaching his disciples to ask for is basically heaven. <laughs> uh, we need that bread for tomorrow uh, so that we can enter into heaven uh, the, the eternal Sabbath rest of God in the future. Um, but secondly, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for forgiveness. Uh, in verse 12 it says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, the language of debt there is talking about our sin. Uh, you know, we have an obligation to God, who is our creator, to love and honour and obey him. But every time we sin, uh, we go into debt. In fact, uh, I don't know about you, but my debt is so massive that I cannot get out of that debt. And the only way that I can uh, cancel my debt before God is for God to show mercy by cancelling the debt for me. Uh, which, as we will see later in Matthew's Gospel, becomes possible as Jesus goes to the cross and on the cross he pays the debt that I owe to God. At the cross we have the assurance that our sins, our debts, have been paid in full because it is actually Jesus who goes to the cross 
and pays that debt in full in my place. And so, Jesus invites his disciples to continue to pray for this forgiveness for the great debt that we owe. Uh, But notice, friends, that Jesus assumes that the disciple of Jesus, whose debts have been forgiven, will also forgive the debts of others. Notice. I mean, how can we not? We've had a massive debt forgiven. How can we then not forgive the debts of others? It's a bit like someone paying your mortgage debt for you, if you have a mortgage, so that you don't have to pay a single cent And then you going out and demanding your friend to pay you back that $20 that you lent him for lunch the other day. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? Now, I don't think uh, this is talking about salvation by works. It's not God saying uh, that he will only forgive us if uh, we, you know, uh, fulfill that condition of forgiving others. But it is saying that the forgiven will be forgivers. The forgiven will be the forgivers. A consistent lack of forgiveness is a sure sign that we do not understand the forgiveness of God and are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I wonder whether there are some here in this room this morning... Um, who are finding it difficult because uh, we've been sinned against by another person uh, or whether we perceive uh, someone else to have sinned against us and we are finding it difficult to forgive. But can you see here that Jesus says that if you are forgiven, then you are to forgive others. Think about the massive debt that God has just cancelled for you that others owe. And finally, friends, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples here to pray for deliverance from the temptation of the evil one. Uh, One of our greatest needs is not to fall to the lies of Satan who would tempt us away from Jesus, who gives life, away into the worship of idols, which only brings death and misery. For to walk away from Jesus and to miss out on his kingdom is the greatest tragedy. And so deliverance is a great need of ours. Uh, I read in the paper uh, a while back of a woman who was dying of a life-threatening illness. And yet uh, what she thought she needed was a holiday. And so with the help of her negligent doctor, she booked herself in for a month-long cruise Uh, While she was at sea, her health got worse and she died suddenly. Her greatest need was a hospital. What she thought she needed only made her worse. Friends, what are the things that you consider to be your greatest needs at the moment? Uh, I'm sure it'll be different for uh, uh, each of us. But do you consider the things that Jesus speaks about here as your greatest need and my greatest need. Do you and I pray for heaven? Do we pray for forgiveness? When was the last time you and I prayed to be delivered from temptation because 
we've been concerned about the danger of walking away from Jesus. Uh, Are these things the things we pray for ourselves and perhaps for our children and for our friends? For they are the things that Jesus teaches his disciples uh, to pray for. Uh, Well, let me finish up. Uh, Are you and I vivid Christians whose prayers look different to the world? Uh, I think prayer is one of those topics that is easy for us to feel guilty about, isn't it? Um, I'm very much aware of uh, my own prayerlessness at times, and uh, it's easy to feel uh, guilty about it. But in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus encourages his disciples to pray by giving them a template Uh, that is to be used to pray differently. Uh, We are not to be like the pagans, that's what we want. It's not wrong, of course, to pray for a long time, but you don't have to pray long and flowery prayers for God to hear you. The Lord's Prayer is only 52 words long, and it teaches us that simple prayers prayed with childlike dependence upon our Father in Heaven will be heard and will be delighted in. And so do not be afraid to pray to him. Now further, it teaches us that disciples of Jesus are not to pray for the same things that uh, those who do not know God seek after. Um, I don't know what pagans uh, seek after in their lives. I'm sure we have a fairly good idea. But we are to pray for God's kingdom. Our prayers for us and our children are to be shaped by kingdom priorities and our greatest needs of heaven and forgiveness and deliverance from temptation. And so will you pray like this? Uh, In a little while, we're going to have a church picnic together, as we've mentioned. And uh, I wonder whether this is actually a a great opportunity uh, just to spend some time praying together uh, as we enjoy time with one another. Uh, So as we have fun together uh, later this afternoon, uh, let me challenge you to grab someone and perhaps pray through some of the themes uh, that we've been seeing in this template uh, that Jesus gives to us in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Be a vivid Christian by praying in this way. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together and we thank you for the great and enormous privilege it is to pray to you as our Father, uh, the one who um, is willing and is able to give us the good things that we ask for, the things that are on our hearts. Uh, Father, we thank you for the teaching of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We thank you for uh, the things that uh, it teaches us and corrects uh, in the way that we pray. And we ask, Father, that as we continue to reflect upon the Lord's Prayer, Uh, that more and more you would change our heart uh, to be shaped by kingdom priorities uh, and to learn to pray for those things which are our greatest needs, uh, which have been met for us in the cross of our Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.